Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you very much for joining us. I truly love bringing on experts from all over the world, from all different fields of understanding our children. Uh, and I have a particularly interesting angle that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about developmental issues. Uh, and I brought on a child development expert because I want to see if there are any red flags we missed as parents. So thank you for joining me today. I am always grateful that any parent, teacher, or clinician is here listening, liking, subscribing, sharing, leaving a review. Please leave us a review if you love the show. Just helps other parents find this show and get the support that they need. My guest today is Teresa Alexander Inman. And I was recently on Teresa's show. She is a parenting coach. She is a board certified behavior analyst and an infant toddler developmental specialist. We're going to find out how she arrived at everything she's shown up to and figure out if we can unlock some of the reasons why our teens are making the decisions that they are making. Teresa, thank you so much for being on the air. It's great to see you again. Aaron, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I really, you know, appreciate you inviting me and so we can have a chat because, you know, I love to talk about all things child development to help parents give them some kind of hope and just have them understand it's not their fault and to stop judging themselves. I want to talk about the red flags. I want to talk about there's genetic issues that could cause the things our kids are going through. There's the trauma issues, and then there's the developmental issues, and we don't pay enough attention to development issues. And that's why I would like the parents to hear you discuss what you know. But before we get into that, why do you do what you do? What is it about what you do that you love, and how did you how did you get there? And please talk about your mommy experiences as well. Oh my goodness. All right. That's so much to talk about. So I started down this path 20 something years ago. <laughs> you know, I sought a bachelor's degree in psychology. And while I was doing that, I volunteered with some friends because I had two boys. And actually, let me just go back a little bit longer. So my second son was born prematurely. And we were sent home with him and told, come back in three months. I said, okay. But, you know, this was 30-something years ago, and nobody said what we were supposed to be doing in those three months. All I heard was, come back in three months. At least I don't remember them telling me what I should have been doing and what they would be looking for when I went back. And we went back, and they said, okay. And, you know, we're, he's fine. Then we went back in six months. Actually, at nine months, they said, you don't need to come back. He's fine. And because they had him put, you know, the, the shape sorter. That's the only thing I remember, Aaron. The sh you know, he did the shape sorter in a few seconds. And they're like, oh, he's fine. I was like, oh, that's all he needed to do. I mean, we didn't even do that at home. I didn't have a shape sorter. My child just, I guess, some figured it out somehow and did all the things. And I asked myself, first of all, I had to think back, what were they looking for? And secondly, what should I have done in that time? So I must have done the right thing, but I didn't know what the right thing was. I didn't know what the thing was. I didn't know that they were checking developmental milestones. And what I'm thankful for is my older son, 
he developed very quickly and met all milestones and everything. So what I'm guessing is that he taught his brother because, like I said, I don't know what I did. (laughs) I really don't. And, you know, I asked myself what I could have done differently because what I found out later was being premature is traumatic to children. Like they're born into trauma because they're out of the safe haven of the womb. So the noises, the poking, the prodding, the pain, all those things, there's no buffer for all of that, for any of that. So they're facing all of that and it's traumatic. And I thought, oh my goodness, that makes sense. Now, what could I have done differently? What should I have done done differently? Did I do something? Because later my son struggled with alcoholism. So if I had done something different, would the results have been different? I don't know. (laughs) There's that cul-de-sac I was talking about. It's like, oh, let me go back and revisit the same four houses that I've been staring at now for 20-some years and don't like the results of the street. So... That's a tough one, but I have to ask, what did you do right? Now that you know, when you became a board-certified behavior analyst, what do you know that you did right or intuitively correct? What I did, I spent a lot of time with my children and being on the floor at their level, just doing things with them. I found out later, you know, because you have to meet children where they are. You know, Uh, another thing my mom told me was read to my children when they were in the womb, talk to them, you know, engage them, like just just keep talking. And, you know, and I did that. And my premature son, Lee, at four, when he actually went into grade one, he was reading at a grade four level. Yeah, because he came home with a book and I was just like, you can't read because that summer we were working on reading because Dre went into school reading. So I thought I want both my kids, you know, to go into school reading. And, you know, I did all the things that I thought of. And I remember one day I asked Lee to spell it. And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, what's IT? And he goes, um, ID? I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, I mean, I was so upset. And then he comes home a couple of weeks later with a book, Star Trek, chapters, small print. And I said, what are you doing with that book? You can't read. He said, yes, I can. And he read the book to me. And I thought, I don't know what happened. (laughs) I love that. I remember my daughter asking her when she was young, I said, can you count to five? And she she yelled at me, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I was like, oh, Nice. What did I do right? Like, I have no idea where you learned that. First of all, let's let's discuss for parents who aren't in the know, what are milestones? What are developmental milestones? And which are the ones that when we're looking at our teenager who's struggling, I'm I'm very curious about some of the ones that gave us the insight, the clues that maybe we saw, maybe we remember, maybe we missed. So what are milestones and what are some of the ones that we're really looking for in those early toddler ages? So milestones are just periods in time, like things that children do at certain periods in time. So for instance, you expect your, you know, three-month-old to be laughing and smiling and reaching up to you, making eye contact with you, you know, um, engaging with you, just, you know, cause you know, like when you look at your baby, your baby looks at you and smiles, right? And you're like, oh yeah. And you continue that conversation and you go on and on. Some children don't do that. You know, there's some children who just, there is nothing, 
there are no bids for attention. There's no interaction, right? Because baby do, babies do start interacting very early in life. You know, they're not laughing. They're not smiling. They're not babbling. You know, I mean, we can go as far as they're not crawling or, you know, just any of those developmental stages, the foundation that children need so that we can build on to get to a place where they can communicate and socialize and engage in all those skills that make us who we are. What's the difference between just a little bit of a developmental delay and, you know, looking at or being told by a doctor, don't worry, they'll they'll walk when they're ready. They'll talk when they're ready. They're, you know, I because you hear that. Oh, they'll blank when they're ready. So I have an issue with that because so many parents I work with, they hear that and they believe that. And at four years old, their child is still not talking and still not socializing. So I tell parents, you are the first everything for your child, the first teacher, the first doctor, the first all the things, right? Because at home, you are doctoring them. You are doing all the things. So did, did you hear that? Did you hear that, listeners? You are the parenting expert. So yeah, like you are the first parent expert on your child. Yes, yes. And I tell parents, I said, listen, I'm trained. However, nobody knows your child better than you do. And if you feel that something is not happening as it should, and I've had parents tell me that as early as six months, they felt in their gut that something wasn't quite, and I'll quote them, right. And I don't like to use terms like wrong or right, but they're not developing as stated in the developmental milestones. Not that these are hard and fast, you know, boundaries or guidelines. However, children should meet these milestones in order for them to develop and not necessarily at the times that the CDC says. However, meeting them will help them develop and, you know, they'll be reading and writing and speaking and, you know, just all those things. Barring the big ones that never change, how do you know whether or not it's going to actually create a problem down the road? You know, what's happening at age two that all of a sudden in their, in their teen years, you're going, oh, crap, that's what that was about. Yeah. So Autism Navigator says, based on their studies, right, that children should have 16 gestures by 16 months. Now, if they don't have that, they can predict that there's going to be a communication delay at two and older. So pointing and raising their hands up and, you know, going shh and shrugging their shoulders, just... You know, How old are you? Four, three, five, okay. Yeah. Because those things, they predict communication. They are the, the foundation, the precursors for communication, these gestures. Because think of it, we act physically before vocally. And I'll tell you something I learned recently. Children who sign, like children. So Dr. Joseph Garcia, I actually interviewed him on my show a few months ago. He is a sign language expert, like with baby sign language. And the reason he developed that, he has a lot of friends in the deaf community. And he'd walk into their homes and their eight-month-old babies are communicating with them through sign. And he was like, wait a second. So what's wrong with our, like, you know, what's going on with our children, right? And these are hearing children of deaf parents who are signing because right? that's how their parents communicate. So we are, it's easier for us to learn because that's the first thing we learn, right? We learn movements we, with our hands, 
right, before we start talking. And then what he found, though, the children who learn sign, when they start speaking, their language is even richer than the children who didn't learn sign. So, for instance, a a child who learns sign will tell you, this is a ball and it's round and it bounces high and it's blue and it's, they'll give you all the, you know, they can describe it and give you, you know, a lot of different, you know, put a ball in different contexts and talk about a ball in different ways. A child who didn't sign will say, it's a ball. And that's it. Yes, exactly. So, and that comes later, right? For them, that those higher level concepts will come later. But the child who learned to sign because they've already ignited their communication centers, you know, and a lot of them, if their parents are not signing, then the sign falls off when they start talking. Because a lot of people think, oh, you know, prevent them from signing. It'll slow down their talking or prevent them from talking. It actually doesn't. It speeds it up. At BrabApp.com, I have posted a parenting masterclass. The content is everything I have ever taught a parent in the past 20 years of working with parents in crisis. There are three components, 56 classes, the red, the beyond risk, the crisis children, yellow, the at-risk children, and green. When things are going well, how do we get them to go great or keep them going well? It's everything. I've ever taught a parent in 20 years of working with families. But here's the deal. It's $99. I want every parent to be able to have access to this course. So please go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B for Beyond Risk and Back. Brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com. Check it out for yourself. Now, here's something that I did with my daughter that I found out later was not good for development. And I'm wondering if you can you can confirm. And I want to ask you a few of these urban myths or facts that we don't know. My daughter's mother and I did not ever respond to her in baby talk. She talked baby talk and we talked in our normal voices. We didn't we did all the cooing sounds and stuff like that when she was first born and you know you know you know those types of things. But when she would talk baby talk, we would respond as adults. She has a wonderful vocabulary, very eloquent speech. But then someone's like, oh, you're supposed to talk baby talk back to them. And, and I was like, you are? And I remember someone else's kid who seemed too old to be talking baby talk came up to me one time and was like, Ian, Ian. And the father said, he's saying Aaron. I'm like, no, he's not. He's saying Ian. <laughs> That's not my name. So I'm not going to respond. And they were like, well, you're being a little intense. Who was right? Was I right? Or is there a mix? Is there more to it than what I'm thinking? You were definitely right. You were definitely right. Yes. And I'll tell you a story with that. So one day I was asked to give a friend of a friend a ride. And her son and my son, my little Lee, the premature little one, they were in the back seat, same age. And the little boy was like, mommy, there's a twerk. And my son asked me, mom, what's a twuck? Now, I've heard that some of that is because of hearing issues and that, that there's, a, there's a lot being done with, with uh, speech therapy and hearing. And, and that if your kid is older and still saying the W's, the twuck, and that, that you got to get their hearing tested. Yes, but I don't believe, like based on, you know, conversation with his mom, that there were any hearing concerns. It's just that, you know, and I work with a little guy right now. He's seven and he has issues with the L's. He says, yike, instead of like. And we work on, you know, tongue positioning and saying words. 
let me ask with that example, how would an L or a speech impairment that's a delay thing, how would that translate into adolescence or even young adulthood? Well, a lot of times they get past that. They get it. Well, something like that, you know, like twerk and like, they don't tend to cause problems later on. Today, children are getting a lot of, you know, speech therapies and those kind of things, but they tend not to, you know, cause problems unless, you know, you have the seven, eight-year-old and their friends make fun of them. And then that could be an issue. But otherwise, you know, that would be the only thing, you know, if they're bullied for it. But otherwise, I have not seen that to be an issue later in life. One of the things that I wanted to speak with you on is the difference between traumatic experiences and developmental experiences that can cause a child's attraction to self-harm or even create some mental health struggles. Bullying, for example. Obviously, bullying and, and what we understand about trauma is a very traumatic experience and can cause some issues with addiction and, and behavioral issues. Can it cause developmental issues? Well, a lot of times when trauma happens from the research, children stay where they are developmentally where the trauma took place. They tend not to grow from that. And also they, as they call it through um, trust-based relational therapy, those children have three ages. So they have their chronological age, they have their cognitive age, which basically was the age that the trauma occurred, and they have their street age. So they may be street smart, you know, chronologically they might be seven, their street smarts might be at 16, but then cognitively, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like there may be three where it happened. Now, what's even more concerning is if a child has experienced trauma while still in the womb. Because if you experience trauma, if a child experienced trauma before they could talk, it has a more compounding effect because of the fact that they're not able to express themselves. So it literally becomes part of their makeup. Because we know that's why therapy can be effective because we're able to talk about our trauma. We're able to, you know, discuss what happens, how we, what we're feeling, how we were thinking. A baby can't do that. So they grow up acting in ways that they, they don't even understand, but it's because of the trauma they encountered from birth to three, birth, you know, from actually in the womb to before they could talk. I mean, do we consider drug use, cigarette smoking, alcohol intake, traumatic experiences or developmental traumas in the womb? Are those things considered? Or are we talking about impact injury? We're talking about stress hormone injury. What, what classifies as in utero issues? Okay, so stress definitely because, you know, cortisol and adrenaline, you know, that changes the hormonal makeup of the mom. And then, of course, it's going to affect the baby. I believe smoking, but there's not a whole lot of studies on that, but definitely alcohol because, you know, you've got the babies with fetal alcohol syndrome and drugs, those type of things definitely impact physical trauma. Absolutely. So, you know, I've worked with, I work with a family now, the mom experienced trauma when her child was in utero. And it wasn't until I explained to her that her child's trauma impacted him more than it did her, that she got to understand it. Cause I said, you could talk about your trauma. He was in utero. He has no idea what happened. However, he was, you know, he was sensing all this, your anxiety, your fear, your stress, all of that, you know, the hormonal changes brought through hormonal changes. And then of course affected him. It makes total sense when we start to understand brain chemistry and things, you know, like adrenals and cortisol and cortisol is they're calling it now the master hormone. Like it is such an important subject to study. My mom was a, was pregnant and single in 19, 
68, in, in 69. It was not a time still, that was still not uh, celebrated as far as, you know, being as young as she was and being on her own and pregnant and having to drop out of school. And so, so certainly we understand those types of things. I, I got to ask, cause this is, this has just come up as we talk about development. I brought up to you before, and I'm curious of your thoughts. I brought up to you before we got on the air about connection to the, to a biological father. Now, this obviously extends and we can talk about, you know, biological parenting and the disconnect uh, emotionally and, and, uh, brain chemistry wise when you're in utero, but then to be removed from a biological uh, connection point at birth. But I also heard, and this was a popular topic a little while back in the mental health arena, that connecting to the biological father at 18 months old physically, specifically being hugged, held, tossed up in the air, things that dads do with their one and a half to three-year-olds, that not having that connection to a biological father creates delay. Is that accurate? So it's the Canadian Center for like Mental Health. There was a doctor speaking there, and he was actually, he had done research on schizophrenia back in England, and then he took that research to Canada. And he they were they were trying to figure out why there was such a prevalence of, you know, mental health issues and, you know, schizophrenia in different populations. And when they looked, they like there were so many different aspects that they looked at. The one common theme was uh, separation. Not, and it wasn't specifically father, but separation from a biological parent from birth to six. I had a little kid who was not participating in camp. I ran in, I ran this kid's camp. We still run it to this day, but it's called Warrior Camp. And we were up in Toronto. Uh, there was a little boy who was kind of half participating and he had no body-mind connection. Like he could not relate to his own body. And we're using foam swords and running races. And he just seemed to not have any connection to his own physical presence. And we had a single mom. And he was sitting there while I was talking to the moms where my colleague was playing with all the kids. And I was talking to the moms about uh, some archetypal psychology stuff that I discuss. And he was sitting on the ground at my feet, kicking my legs. And it was just, he wasn't angry or aggressive or anything like that. And I grabbed him and I held I lifted him up and I held him upside down by his legs. And the mom leapt out of her seat coming around and I said, just hang on a second, watch. And the kid froze and was hanging upside down, like stiff as a board, like, ah, ah, and like had no spatial awareness to his own body. And I just started talking again and I relaxed my nervous system. Mom relaxed. And it took about 30 seconds and the kid started giggling and relaxing. And I started swinging the kid back and forth. Doing that kind of father throws the kid up in the air while mom goes, oh, what are you doing? You know, and is that necessary? Is that that rough and tumble? Is that necessary part of development? It is. It is. It is. Yes, it's necessary for social emotional learning. Right. Children need that. They need that rough and tumble. I actually got in trouble for that, but I would do it again because it's necessary for children to engage in rough and tumble play. They learn empathy through that. They learn boundaries through that. Like, there's so many things that they learn, you know, to 
social to help them with their, you know, social interaction? Because how do you know that, and I'll put it, you know what, I'll share a study with you. So there's, there's studies out of Germany and Japan where they allow children to engage in rough and tumble play. And when these children, you know, later on in their teenage years, they ask them, well, why don't you fight? And they say, well, because it hurts people. In America, rough and tumble play is not allowed. I mean, at least in the schools that I've worked in, because like I said, I got in trouble for rough and tumble play, for allowing it. <laughs> so when they ask those, when they ask American children, why don't you fight? Because I'll get into trouble. So it becomes extrinsic as opposed to intrinsic. So I know it hurts people. Now, my thing is, if you're only doing it because you won't get into trouble, are you going to do it when nobody's watching? It was interesting. I met my wife and my son because my, my son became a martial arts student of mine. And there's a gradient to the rough and tumble that I missed a couple times, but he did great in the martial arts class. And then after my wife and I were you know uh, uh, together, I remember one time we were walking across this field and I sacked into him. And he was really upset by that. And my wife was like, what are you doing? I'm like, wrestling. She's like, that's not wrestling. <laughs> like, you don't, you don't get to tell me what's wrestling. Thing is, looking back, she was right. I didn't, I didn't host a gradient of that rough and tumble. I totally scared him, surprised him. And but he's a very physical kid and and skateboarded and injured himself and did great in martial arts and when he got older. Uh, you know, so it's it's neat to know about that rough and tumble, but how what are some of the replacements of that? Is dance rough and tumble? Gymnastics seems to be rough and tumble, obviously martial arts, but what else? Yeah. And I think too, though, the biggest part of it is that interaction with somebody else doing, you know what I mean? Like, yes, those things are rough and tumble, but you want that relationship. And those things, gymnastics and all that, they're great because children who are not allowed to take risk when they're younger, they tend to engage in riskier behavior when they get older. That might have been just one that we were talking about. Uh, what are the things we did or didn't do as parents that as teenagers, why are they making these risky decisions? That overprotective mother, that overprotective father that that we we are, that could be one of the causes, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I know for me, I was very over, I mean, even to this day, my son, <laughs> I, mean, I am, I am, you know, I, and my son is used to it because like one day I didn't call him and he's like, mom, I didn't hear from you today. And again, he's 36. He's like, are we beefing? Yeah. So I'm, I'm learning to back off though, instead of always trying to, you know, say, why don't you do this? And why I, I, I've, I've learned to ask, how can I support you? <laughs> does TV, does internet delay development, early access? Yes, yeah, screens definitely do it because, again, there's no social element to it. It's just a one way. And then studies show that brains of children who are exposed to a lot of screen time look a lot different than children who have social interactions. Now, the one way to combat that, first of all, limit screen time. Secondly, if you're going to allow your child to watch screens, you know, for extended periods, do it with them and talk to them about it. So you can sit and watch whatever. Oh, did you see he just did that? You know, talk about it with them. You, then you're putting in a social element to something that is one way. So then does that change when they're allowed to go online and play video games with other people? It does. And still, though, you want to be careful because, again, everything, anything done in excess becomes a problem. 
So yeah, when they're allowed to engage with other people, definitely that changes it. But we find that, you know, in the early stages, that's not the case. You know, you've got two, three and four year olds on screens for extended periods, even in daycares, I might add, that, you know, are not serving them. So then COVID hurt us in your mind. In some ways, yes, it did. However, you know, if you were able to, you know, have your child with you and talk to your child, I mean, yes, you're working online and, you know, just have those little breaks and interact with children. I and mean, it's still not as much as possible. But yeah, there was some side effects of COVID. What are other things that you know that if if we miss or we did miss, our kids are struggling now that they're teenagers, what are some other of the big ones that we should we should look to to maybe find some reasons why they're taking these unhealthy risks and not mitigating consequences and dangerous behavior choices. So yes, consequences are huge. A lot of parents do not allow their children to face consequences. You know, they prevent them. They, you know, like for instance, if your child climbed on something, right? Don't pick them up and put them down. Right? Make them climb down, be there to help them, to help them without making it obvious that you help them, but be on the standby so they don't get really hurt, but allow them to feel that little sense of fear. It's like, oh my, I don't know how to get down. So then they're less likely to do it again. Because if you keep picking them up and putting them down, then you've prevented them from contacting that consequence, right? If you're always, you know, if you're not allowing your child to fall, or walk barefoot outside. You know, if they're insisting on doing it, let them. Like a friend of mine who's a psychologist, her daughter, her three-year-old daughter wanted to walk out on, you know, they were at the park and she wanted to take her shoes off. And my friend was like, well, you know, the mulch is uncomfortable. It might hurt your foot. And she insisted on going barefoot. So her mom said, sure, go ahead. She came back and asked for her shoes. Right. So that was, you know, you have to allow these things or the child who decides they want to go, it's cold outside and they don't want to wear a jacket. Then you say, you know, what? why fight with them? Let them find out. It's not going to hurt them. So my friend did another friend of mine. She did that. And because her daughter insisted on going out, going out with shorts. Well, you know, she was wearing shorts and she insisted on the shorts. She never did it again. She came home and said, mom, I'll wear pants tomorrow. It was her decision. We have to allow children to make mistakes. And that way they will remember more what they encountered than what we told them not to do. It feels like a Generation X thing that we were so upset with how uncomfortable we were at times that we refused to let our children be cold, be hungry, be uncomfortable, be bored. And that there, we keep looking to the kids and saying, you know, these kids play too many video games. And I find myself having to remind parents, adults built the game, adults sell the game, adults market the game. A lot of adults are buying the game for their children and then complaining how much the children are playing it. So I don't hold the children responsible for their inability to be uncomfortable if the adults are giving them a prize and an award and a trophy for showing up and graduating second grade, when we had to wait till, and we weren't rewarded if we didn't. And there was discomfort in that, but resilience, resilience and identity is based on struggle and, and success or failure. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, delayed gratification. Oh my gosh, that's so huge, right? Because everybody wants what they want now. And I tell parents, listen, if your child can't wait for a minute, have them wait for 30 seconds. And then once they're waiting effectively for 30 seconds, then you can have them wait for 35 and 30 and, you know, gradually increase their wait time to help them with that because you created what you created. I hate to say it, but we're the models for our children. If we don't do it, they're not going to do it. It's just like telling your child not to smoke and you're sucking on a cigarette or telling your child, well, you need to eat healthy, but then you've got this big, you know, whatever it is that you're gorging on and they can't have it. And of course, what are they going to do? You know, you've seen it. A lot of children look like their parents, you know, size and all. Like you can, you know, predictably you see families walking because they're all eating the same thing because the child is going to eat what the parents eat, whether or not it's okay. Like, who is it? Somebody told me the other day that um, a health coach, he's working with a family and his son, he said, oh, the son has no self-control, right? They were at swimming classes. The son's a little, you know, had a little extra weight on. And the dad was complaining that the son had no self-control. Dad had a lot of extra weight on. Where'd he get it from? <laughs> yeah, crutch behavior. I any any parent who binge watches anything and then complains about their children's crutch behavior, they, they there's a mirrors not fingers moment they gotta have before the work can truly begin. All right, we're rounding down to the end here. So I wanna know, let's say you know your child has some and maybe this is too complicated of a question and or too intricate, but let's say you know your child has some developmental delay and we're looking at potentiality for risky decision-making and behaviors. What can we do? What's our biggest number one strategies to avoid some of the fallout of developmental delay? First thing, engage your child. You know what I've seen a lot. So parents, there are a few things that you can do very early on. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of talking around your child. Because the more words a child hears, the more words they're going to use, and the better they will um, perform academically. Because we've seen, I used to work in juvenile justice, and I worked in male programs mostly. I worked in one female program, so I'm going to reference the, the male programs. When a young man came in, maybe he was 18 years old and read at a, well, actually, maybe not 18, it'll probably be more like 16 because they aged out at 18. So, you know, he'll come in at 15, 16, 17 years old. Most of them sadly read below third grade. Yeah. When somebody came in, like I, they, we would celebrate. I remember one day the, la the lady who um, did the testing swell, she came to me, she's like, oh, he reads at a fifth grade level. We were like celebrating <laughs> because, you know, here is this, you know, child in high school and he's reading at fifth grade. However, he was the best reader in the program. Yeah, it was really sad. You know, we had one young man who tested out gifted, one. And um, yeah, it was a maximum security facility for boys, also a sex offender unit. And a lot of these young men, they'd been exposed to porn very early in life. And then they offended. And now here they are labeled for life as sex offenders, some as young as 12. You and I talked a little bit about that before we started the call. Is it is there such thing as, we've got developmental delays, but is there such thing as too much too soon? Like pornography, does that create developmental delays if I see it before 
what, age 12? That seems to be where we first found calendars and magazines back in the day. But now, by God, there's nothing you're protected from. And parents, I don't, we cannot stress this enough. I don't care how much you are trying to protect at home. You cannot protect when 30% of the internet is pornography. You, yeah, and so you have to really be judgmental about the internet in your home, even though it seems like a necessity. But Teresa, does violence, early access to pornography, seeing violent material, things like that, too much too soon, does that create problems? Is there a term for that in, in developmental delay? Is It's not a delay, it's it's too soon? The studies all show that children from birth to seven, they're in a meditative state. So they're absorbing everything in their environment. Because, you know, think of meditation. We're just, you know, your their brains are just in absorption mode. And anything that, I would equate that to trauma, right? When they see things like that, because they don't know how to assimilate that information. Like they don't know what to do with it. And it's be, it's becoming part of their makeup, right? So they are, like I said, they're just absorbing, they're becoming, that's when you you want to be very careful about what you put into your child because it's wiring them, right? It is hardwiring them into who they're going to be. And then now it's going to cost millions of dollars to rewire them, right? So it's better to get to have good hardwiring, right? Get that foundation in. Um, Dr. Ravi Rajaratnam wrote a book called Hardwiring Versus Rewiring and basically talks about that. Just giving your children, inputting what will serve them and leaving a lot of those other things out because, again, they will cause them to, you know, your children to engage in behaviors later on that make them unemployable. And that's how he started with this because through looking at adults, because he, he managed adults. And when he did annual reviews, he would find that, you know, different attitudes and he would ask them about their childhood. And there was a resounding theme, the ones who were coachable and, you know, the ones who were successful compared to the ones who were not. And that led him to write his book, Hardwiring versus Rewiring. And I, I think it's important to mention that based on our current understanding of neuroplasticity, you can rewire the brain at any time in your life. It's never too late. It never is. However, it's just, it's going to be more costly because you're going to, you know, you'll require some help, you know, in, in a lot of cases and it takes a little longer. So it's better to set them off with a foundation of, you know, where they learn, they've learned empathy. They've learned to be resilient. They've learned self-help. They've, you know, they've had a good amount of natural consequences to help them not engage in risky behaviors later on. So you want to allow for these things and not protect them from, because later they will, they might need to be protected from. If a parent wants to follow up, ask you questions, connect with you about their younger children, how, how do they find you? How, how are families going to follow up with you? So there's actually a link on my website where they can get in touch with me, but also um, they can email me at parentcoachteresa at gmail.com. My website is teresaalexanderinman.com. you have any Facebook groups, anything like that? Instagram? Um, I too. I'm really working on that. I have a Facebook group, but truth be told, I'm not active in it. So 
I don't want to send somebody where they're not going to find me. I do post TikTok videos though. I parent coach Teresa. Yeah. And they can also connect with me. There's a link where they can like book a session with me so that we can talk about their particular situation. And it's a free session. Aside from the connection point behavior that, that was caused by developmental delays, knowing that one of the things that a developmental delay or just being a teenager can create is the desire to disconnect from a parent. What is, what is a parent's strategy when their kids are really struggling that, that you want parents to know? Okay. So first of all, try to connect from the very beginning. You know, when your baby is born, do all those things. Because I'm very much, I like to come from a prevention model. So if you have a baby, you know, do the skin to skin, do the play at their level, you know, do the cooing with them and, you know, talk to them and just play, have fun with them. You're So that way, as they develop, you're going to, you know, you can only build on that relationship. However, it's not too late. But the thing is, avoid asking a lot of questions, avoid interrogating your child. You know, make it safe for them to come to you. Because a lot of times we ask a question and then our answers are, why did you do that? Well, they're not going to want to talk to you. No, not an interrogation. Just, you know, hey, you know, like just talk about school. Like, you know, like, but not in a way that is judgmental, not in a way that puts them on the spot. Just find, because you know your child better than you do. So Find ways to reach them. You know what? If it's playing a video game with them or watching a, their t- favorite television show, get do what they're interested in. And if they're the teenagers that don't want you to be involved with what they're interested in, just, you know what? Hey, you know what? Let's just, you know, sit and have some juice together. That's going to bring something up. You know, pretty good, right? That juice it tastes really good. Do you, is, do you like that juice? And again, you'll start building from there, right? Because you you want to, because sometimes our, and the way, the reason I'm saying that, some parents feel like they're teenagers or strangers. So start with something that's very benign, something, you know, not like a heavy conversation. Just talk about anything and just avoid a lot of questions. I think what's so important about what Teresa has taught us during this episode is these these things, these milestones, these landmarks of of growth can really affect what's going on. And knowing that, maybe we do relieve ourselves from some pressure because not understanding and making up the answers in our head, I know what that what that leads to. This can't be about blame. And I have certainly experienced feeling dealing with parents who feel confronted by me saying things about parenting strategies that don't work. You say, well, you know, that's what I did. And I'm feeling pretty triggered by that. I don't look down the cul-de-sac of parenting to say what they should have done. I don't think that helps anybody. But knowing how we ended up here, there's an old saying that I think is very important is if the rule led us to this, of what use is the rule? It doesn't mean we have to feel bad about what we did or didn't. We all make mistakes. My children have been very clear on some of the mistakes I've made. And watching my son have his first child, I was reminded of a moment when he and I were arguing on the phone and he was about 14 years old. And my wife and I had started working with other families and we're having those families keep their kids with us. 
And I remember something my son said, where he said very clearly, after I had said very loudly, you knew this was going to happen. And he said very clearly, didn't. You never asked. And he was referring to giving away his childhood home to other people's teenagers. That's a guilt I carry, turning his home into a place for other teenagers to heal. And we got to face those regrets. It's not facing them so that I can somehow try to make it right. The guilt will make us think that that's what we got to do. It's facing them because, frankly, I don't believe in, in living life without regrets. The regrets I have make me who I am today. And who I am today, I feel, is a much more supportive parent than I was when he was 14 years old. I want to thank Deepin Productions for making sure this podcast sounds incredible. And I want to thank my listeners. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode and all the other episodes of Beyond Risk and Back. Remember, parents, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because that's how we do our best work with our kids. See you next week. 